know there's something out there, we human beings. We know there's something out there, and Hollywood, you know, likes to make movies about what's out there. The latest one is John Carter. It's not doing very well. Um, I read this week, it's, it's looking at losses of $200 million. Um, that, that hurts if you're the studio. But the studios, they're going to keep making them because this theme, it, it resonates with us. We, we're fascinated with what is out there. And in these movies, every once in a while, there's an alien that is friendly and, you know, lovable, like E.T., or, or someone like that, or some alien like that. I don't know if it's a one or not, a someone or a some alien. Um, but most of the time, they are powerful and intelligent, more intelligent than we are, more powerful, much more, like Predator. So you, you, you sort of shake, you know, when you see that the, the aliens are around. In this mess, message series, what we're doing is we're looking at the God who's really there. We, we know who's out there. Scripture tells us. And so we're looking at the God who really exists, trying to understand more about him so that we can live in light of who he is. He is, he is far more powerful and intelligent than we are. But since he is pure love, we can trust him. He's, he's powerful, but he's pure love. Because of his power, it's right to fear him. The right kind of fear of God is it means that you respect him, you fear him in the sense that you reverence him, you, you respect him so much that you take him seriously and you stay inside the boundaries that he sets up for life, the, the commands that you find in scripture. So uh, it, it's right since he is so powerful, so awesome and so majestic, it's right to fear him. In fact, the fear of God is one of the, mo- the motivating factors in my decision to follow Christ. I, I can remember like it was yesterday, sitting in the back of the church and working through this decision. If several years prior, I had walked out. In my church growing up, <clears throat> the way you expressed your desire to follow Christ is you walked down the aisle and you told the pastor, I want, I want to follow Christ. You know, I, I'm... I've sinned, I've been wrong, and I want to follow Christ. And I had actually done that several years prior to this moment in time. Uh, I heard that my friend was going to be baptized. We're having a baptism next week. That's something very, you know, you can see it going on. And I heard he was going to be baptized. I didn't want him to get the jump on me. And so I walked down there and I said, hey, I, I, I want to follow Christ. And I said the right I actually didn't say the right things. I don't know why he let me slide. I remember what I told him, but he let me slide anyway, and I got baptized. But I lied. I wasn't completely truthful about my decision. I just wanted to be baptized because I didn't want my best friend to beat me to the punch or whatever, you know. So um, anyway, I'm in the back of the church, and I get convicted of my sin. Now, conviction's very different than guilt. When you feel guilty, you sort of wallow in it, and you don't know how to get out of it. Conviction, when you get convicted of your sin, it's like a knife that goes right to the heart of the problem, and it's God speaking to you and and sort of opening you up for surgery. And so I get convicted of my sin, and I'd been under conviction. That's what we used to call it. We were under conviction. 
of sin and my rebellion against God. I'm in the back of the church, and I'm holding on for dear life. I'm white-knuckling the pew in front of me. I'm just holding on because now I have to go in front of these people and tell them I was lying before. And so I'm white-knuckling, and and the motivating factor for me, one of the motivating factors is the fear of God. I knew who he was. I knew how powerful he was. And I knew I needed to humble myself and make it right with him. And so when I let go of that pew in front of me and walked down that aisle, I experienced peace and relief. And I began to walk through life with a God who loves me and has the power to help me and is willing to help me and has proven that. Year after year, day after day, month after month. He's, he's proven his love for me. Since God is all-powerful, it is right to fear him. It is in the right way. We don't have to fear him like terror that you see in the alien, but you, you, reverence, you reverence him, you respect him for who he is. Because of his intelligence, he's powerful and more intelligent than we are. Because of his intelligence, We shouldn't expect to understand everything there is to know about him and everything there is to understand about him. So last week we talked about this. God introduces himself as a trinity, three in one. God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We should expect a good amount of mystery in relation to God because if he could fit into our mind, he would be too small. That's that's too small a God. We can't expect to, 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 to fit him into our mind. How can we understand everything there is to understand about a great God, like the one who's really there? There is enough certainty, both intellectually and spiritually, there's enough certainty that we can know him, that we can relate to him, and that we can learn to trust him. But we aren't going to understand everything about him, and that's one of these that's, that's part of the deal with the Trinity. There's only one God. No one compares to him. There's only one of him, and there's, there's a bunch of us. And in human life, it's like one equals one, but with God, it's, it's one equals three persons. And so we can't expect to understand that. The other thing we talked about last week is Jesus, the Son, makes the Father known to us, and he aims to accomplish his will. You get a better understanding of each person of the Trinity and the role that they play, as you watch Jesus interact with the Father, and as you watch them do God's will and accomplish his purpose in the world, you begin to see their, their roles. And we, we looked last week at how Jesus had a theme, and it was the Father's will. I came to do the Father's will. I came to accomplish it. And in his conversation with the, the woman at the well, we see that God is a good father. He has a will because good fathers, they have a will. They want good stuff for their kids. They, they want life to go good for the kids. And so they have a will. They have an opinion about how they're, you know, what they should do with their life. And the, the, God's a good father who watches over us, and he keeps bringing us to moments of decision. He, he orchestrates our life. He's not going to force his will on us. He's not going to do that. But he orchestrates our life and the details of our lives. He wires them together. To keep, he, he brings us to these moments of decision where we choose my will or his will, my will or his will. And we, we keep choosing. So 
in today's message, with that as a background, we're going to look at the role of the son. We looked at the father last week, today the role of the son. Um, we, we, we see that the father's will is accomplished by the son. That's what you find out in, in scripture. That's what you see happening. God has a plan for your life and mine. And one of the giant things that he's doing in the world is he is in the process of making things right. He's in the process of making the world right. And so in the Bible, you discover that there are two great plans of God that are carried out by the Son. Two giant plans that are going on. The first is creation. The first one is uh, creation, and I want you to read with me Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he, he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's like you take a, a, an icon, a, a symbol, and you dip it in wax, and then you, you take that and you print it, or you take the icon and you dip it in the wax, and it makes the exact imprint. That's what it's saying. Jesus is God. He's the exact picture of God. He is, he is God, and he shows us who God is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. It was the Father's will to create something out of nothing. And what he created, it contains a tremendous sense of of wonder. And so, as we look at creation, there's this sense of beauty, there's this complexity, and it compels us to try to figure out how it works. It's the way we're wired. God put this in us. He, he wants us to, to search things out, to research, to check them out, try to figure out how things work. We, we have this desire, this desire to keep searching and discovering how things work. That's, you know, we have the Discovery Channel. So we watch the Discovery Channel to see this world that God has made and discoveries that are going on. This passage says that the Father created the world through the Son, through Jesus. It also tells us that the Son is holding the universe together by the word of his power. This is interesting because the discovery of the atom raised a question. When we discovered the atom, that that's the basic thing that makes up life, it raised a question. What holds the atom together? What holds that basic building block together. The nucleus of the atom is made up of protons. This is a little scary. I'm talking about scientific stuff. Don't ask me too much beyond this, but this is what I, what I understand. Uh, the atom is made up, the nucleus is made up of protons, which have a positive electrical charge, neutrons, which have a neutral charge, and it should fly apart. The atom, the way it's made up, it should just be flying apart. Why doesn't it? Well, scientists, when they were able to discover how it was made up, then they began to ask, why doesn't it fall apart? So the scientists came up with a name for what holds it together, strong force. That's what they call it. That's what's holding the atom together. 
Particle accelerators are able to smash protons into pieces and uncover the subatomic world. So protons are made up of quarks that fly around at the speed of light inside the proton. What is holding these quarks together? What, what is holding these? They came up with a name. I think it's a great name. A massless force called gluons. Is that great? I don't know what to call it. Let's call it a gluon. You know, it's like holding the thing together. They didn't know. Now, when this passage of Scripture was written, they were a long way from this discovery. They had no idea how atoms were the building block of life and how they needed to be held together by some force. They had no idea. Now we know that they need to be held together, and now we know the name of the one who's holding it together, Jesus. By the word of his power, if he said the word, everything would fall apart. It would blow. By the word of his power, it was through him that the world was made, and it's by the word of his power, it's the will of the Father that it holds together. And what God is doing in the world is he's, he's made the world and he's holding it together. That's the first great plan that the Son accomplished and is still accomplishing as he keeps things together. The second one, he brings salvation. Creation needs to be held together, but it also needs to be saved. And I want to explain that. We sang a couple of songs prior to, to my getting up here that, that have, they're packed with, with symbolism, with words that show us what God did to make this happen. But the Bible says that every one of us has sinned. In other words, we have rebelled against God. That's what I was convicted of when I was holding on to the pew in the back of the church. Rather than doing his will, what he wants, we have gone our own way in life. We, we, we haven't done, gone God's way, done life the way he wants, but we've gone our own way. And sin, it separates us from knowing God, from knowing God personally. It separates us from God because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. So it cuts us off. Our rebellion cut us off from God. When the first man and the first woman decided to rebel against God's will, he, he put them in the world, he gave them boundaries, they, they did not fear God in the right way, and they broke through the boundaries, they disobeyed his commands. When they did that, sin entered the world. Listen to this description of sin by John Piper, I think it's helpful. Sin is not just an isolated little thing we do here and there. It's not just deeds, it's a power. It moves in the heart, it moves in the will, it moves in the world, it takes hold. It's got a grip on every human being. It's an awful thing. Everybody in this room is infected with it. Of course, he said that to the group he was speaking to, and it's true about us. We're all infected by it. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture that says all of creation is groaning, waiting for the day that God makes things right the day of redemption, for for the day when we pull it together. Because sin is not just stuff we do. It's, it's, it's a disease that's infected us and, and the creation itself. And what God has done is he's put, he put his plan into place to, to redeem it, to bring it back together, to buy it back, and to bring the world back together. Jesus worked the plan. 
the plan of the Father. He stepped into the world to bring salvation from sin according to God's plan. Hebrews 1, 3, the last part of that verse, it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's, a, that's an exclamation point, I think. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh-oh. Am I going to? Yeah. I always feel like I'm a rocket ship about to take off or something when that happens, but I don't think so. Um, I'm a human being, aren't I? Um, All right. Since we're infected with sin, we are dying a slow death. That's reality. That's what's happening. So the Father initiated a plan to save us, a rescue plan. So in the Bible, you learn that the Son does the work of salvation for us. He, he does the work. Religion is spelled do. I like this. One, one, one guy said this. Religion is spelled do. Christianity is spelled done. Jesus did it. It's done. He did the work on our behalf. The Father's rescue plan required Jesus, the Son, to become like us. He became a human being. It's interesting. His name is Jesus. It means Jehovah saves, the, name, the Hebrew name for God. God saves. That's what Jesus means. That's why he came. In the process of God saving us this way, we picked up an older brother like no other. We we gained an older brother. And it's clear in the Bible that the moment you decide to follow Christ as Lord, you receive salvation. It says you pass from death to life in that moment. Your eternity is secure. Your future is secure. But there are also two important ways that our older brother Jesus and the salvation he brings helps us in the here and now, day to day, right now. He leads us and he defends us. And I want to look at these. First of all, Jesus leads the way. Firstborn in a family leads the way. They're they're the first one to go to school. They're the first one. To go on a date, they're the first one to get a job, they're the first one to go to college. And the younger kids, they're watching the older kid go through the stages of life and they're learning. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But they're watching the older child, the first one, go through everything. Jesus plays this role in the lives of his followers. Look at Hebrews 2. God, for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, that's us, those who trust him, have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. He is, a pioneer is the first one. He's he's the one that, leads us through it and he does this by suffering and dying in our place he he died for us the hunger games is the hot movie out this week and i haven't read the story i haven't read the book i don't really know the story but i saw a gripping scene from the on a tv show that was reviewing movies and things um where In the Hunger Games, every once in a while, I guess, in the future, this is off in the future, every once in a while, uh, I think every year, I don't know, 
I don't know. You can correct me. I'm sure I'll get corrected. Somebody tell me if I'm right or wrong. But um, anyway, about once a year, I think, they, people from different districts in the, in the world, they have to go to these hunger games, and they fight for their lives. The, the end of the games is when somebody's dead and somebody's alive. So the scene I saw is they're, they're choosing the people who are going to have to be in these games. And the heroine, her little sister, gets chosen. And the heroine comes forward and says, no, 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 don't take her. I'll do it. And that, that's how she gets into the games. And that is gripping and touching because here's the older sister who's willing to die for the little sister. She, she said, that, that grips us because of the love that it portrays. That is tremendous. That is the ultimate love. Well, Jesus did the same for us. He paid for our sin by suffering on the cross for the sin that we had committed. Our response is to accept what he's done. It's done. He's done it. And then live for him. We accept what he's done and we decide to live his way. The passage also says it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering a perfect leader. It's fitting, it says. In, in bringing salvation to us through Jesus, one of God's major aims is to have one great unified family. Jesus is different than we are. He's God. He's perfect. But still, he's deeply united to his brothers and sisters, his human brothers and sisters. And this is how. The unifying factor is suffering. If all the brothers and sisters experience suffering except one, unity would be very shallow. It, it, would, not, it would not be very deep. So it's fitting. It's a very specific word. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It makes perfect sense that Jesus leads us through to salvation through his suffering. This is his way of being a good brother, a good big brother, the first one. This is his way of doing it. It's another thing that makes salvation so great. Not only are we saved from uh, an eternity separated from God, but we have this big brother who has identified with, with us in the same kind of troubles, the same kind of suffering, same kind of temptations that we go through. He understands and not only that, he's willing and able to help us. Look at Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that, he, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This, this is the, what we have in Christ. He, he works through us to bring us to points where we trust him with what's going on in our lives, our suffering. He can identify with it. He feels with us. He goes through it. He also works out our suffering for our good. And this is a verse we look at a lot because it brings a lot of hope and encouragement and perspective to life, Romans 8, 28. But I want to focus on 29. 28 says that God works everything together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. 
And then 29 says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There it is again, firstborn, the the one leading the way through there. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we take him by the hand, and he leads us through the trouble that we face and even makes our suffering good for us. He can identify with it. He went through it. So Jesus leads the way, and he walks through troubles with us. There's another way our brother helps us. Jesus defends us daily. Now, I grew up in a home, and I'm going to be more careful with this than I was in the first service, but my brother and sister are are older than I am. I'm just going to state the facts. Um, they're older. My sister's 12 years older than I am, and my brother's 15 years older. So I didn't really grow up in the same house with them. We didn't, we didn't have your basic sibling fights that I hear about and that I've seen on occasion with my nieces and nephews and, and cousins and others. But from what I hear and what I've seen, brothers and sisters who grew up in the same house and are closer together in age than I was, they can fight ferociously. They can get into real tussles with each other. But I also understand if anyone from outside the family attacks a brother or sister, the brother and sister are going to stand up and defend them to the death. That's, that's going to happen. The siblings step in to defend the one who's under attack. It's exactly what Jesus does for us as our older brother. First John 2. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. The goal for those in the family of God is not to sin, but we do sin. We do. And so Jesus, when we sin, he goes to our defense. And God's not attacking us. That's not who's attacking us. He's the one we sinned against, but he does not attack us. It's Satan who attacks us. Because when we decide to follow Christ and we we fall to sin, the enemy, Satan, begins to accuse us. Actually, his name means accuser. That's the, the meaning of his name. So when we sin... He demands that justice be done. This is the picture. of It's a courtroom. God, the Father, Jesus, Satan. Satan's demanding for justice to be done. And Jesus defends us before the Father because he's already paid for that sin. Satan and his demons, they're tempting and accusing us. You shouldn't have said that. You know that. If you were really a Christian, would you have said that? Would you have thought that? Would you have done that? What, what, what's up with you? What, you know, I, I know the accusations very well. He's, he's busy accusing and tempting. And here's the thing. Jesus is defending us constantly before the Father. We don't have to wallow in guilt and shame because of what Jesus has done. There is no need to pay twice for your sin. It's been paid. Out of, out of his tremendous love, that song we sang right before the message, love so amazing what Jesus has done. He's given us life for us. 
He paid for us. We don't have to pay twice. The verse says that Jesus atones for our sin. Through his death on the cross, he removed the barrier of sin that separated us from God. So the two parties, ourselves and God, can be at one. That's, that's what the word atone means, at one. It's just like it's spelled. We're at one with God because of what Jesus has done. Now, when I sin, it's easy for me to wallow in guilt and shame and beat myself to smithereens and, oh, what are you thinking? Why'd you do that? There you go again. You just, oh, you weren't going to do that ever again. What were you thinking? It's very easy to wallow. If I try to defend myself and work my own way out of the guilt by excusing it, rationalizing it, blaming someone else for it, I don't get free. I don't get freedom from my guilt. But what I've learned, if I accept what Jesus has done for me, God, I've blown it again. I I confess that to you. The moment I confess, which means agree with God about what I've done, I'm free from the sin. I'm cleansed from the sin. I've learned that I don't have to accept the thoughts and emotions that are tied to all this, those thoughts. I'm getting help with those thoughts. We get help with our thoughts, our emotions. The enemy's tugging on these things. I can refuse the guilt and shame, accept what Jesus has done for me, and I can have victory. That's the only way. I can't, I can't gain victory on my own. I do not. Sometimes the, the accuser, Satan, brings a vague sense of guilt, false guilt. I don't have to accept that. I can reject it because Jesus is defending me. He's my defender. He's my older brother who's defending me. He's working for us. It's amazing. I want to wrap up the message by looking at two very important ways that we remember Jesus' work. We've looked at the ways that he's worked on our behalf through creation, through salvation. And there are two ceremonies that Jesus asked us to do to remember his work of salvation. He knows human beings. He knows how we are. We have a tendency to lose sight of the significance of significance of things like i collected coins for a while i was really excited for a few weeks about collecting coins and i had the you know little blue books and you put the coins in there and you find out how much they're worth well that faded then i got into baseball cards and then i've had a few autographed baseballs in my time and one of those autographed baseballs, I, th- I think i had i'm pretty sure and look at me i can barely remember this but i'm pretty sure i had a sandy koufax autographed baseball i don't even want to know what that'd be worth Today, I really don't, because what would happen with the baseballs is we, we'd run it, we'd lose all of our baseballs and we need a ball to play with in the, in the, in the street. And sure enough, I had this autographed baseball. Oh, well, who cares? You know, I'm not going to keep it forever. I'd probably lose it. So I scuff it all up. It's all messed up. It's somewhere in Southgate, California. I don't know, but it, it's not worth anything because you can't read the signature. We have this tendency to lose sight of the importance and significance of things. Jesus wants us to remember, so he asked us to do these two things. He asked us to follow him in baptism. Baptism is an initiation. It is something that he commanded us to do as soon as we decide to follow Christ. We're going to celebrate baptism next week. And as soon as we've decided to follow Christ as Lord or boss, we're to be baptized. It's a picture of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
it reminds us of his suffering on his, our behalf and the resurrection to new life that he, he uh, accomplished for us. It's inconvenient. It's a little embarrassing. We have to take the time to do it. So your hair gets wet and, you know, you come out. And you, you, you have to humble yourself before a crowd of people and say, I'm a rookie or I'm going back and doing, I'm doing this again. But Jesus asked us to do it. And if you look at what he's done for us, it's a tremendous way to identify with him. It's, it's, it's sort of a test. He wants to know if we're going to go public with our faith in him. And so it's a test. It's a test. Are we going to obey him when we've prayed to receive Christ or when we've decided in our heart to follow? It's an outward picture of our intent to follow Christ and obey him from that day that we committed our life to him forward. At CIV, we do it like they did it in the Bible. Baptize is a word. They actually just took the Greek word and transliterated it. They put it directly into Scripture. It means to dip underwater. So we do it that way, and that's a test of obedience to the Bible. Are we going to do exactly what Scripture says? So that's what we do. Least we could do for the one who sacrificed his life for us. Second ceremony is like a memorial. It's the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate that tonight. But on the Thursday night before Jesus was crucified on a Friday, he had the last supper with his disciples, and he took the bread. We sang about this in the song right before the message. He took the bread at the table, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This represents my body. I'm, I'm, it's going to be broken. And he took the cup, and he said that it represents his blood which is shed for our sins. And he asked them to do this ceremony from time to time. He never said how often, but he asked them to do it from time to time to remember what he's done. And so tonight we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And later on in the New Testament, you find out that it's, it's a time to examine your relationship with God. It's, it's a time for believers, for those who've committed their lives to follow Christ, to remember what Jesus has done, to examine our relationships and reconcile. And then it's a time of renewal as God gives us, brings back, allows us to bring back into focus the significance of Jesus' death on the cross for us. So those are the two things, and we happen to be doing them tonight and next week. So it gave me an opportunity to talk about the ways that we remember the work that Jesus did for us. We have a father who watches over us. He has a will for us. He wants what's best and what's good. We have a brother who is working for us. He did the work of salvation that we needed, but he's still working for us to help us when we find ourselves in need. We can completely trust what he's done for us, for our salvation, and what he is doing in our sufferings because he's been there. He's our older brother who's been there. So I'd like to wrap up the message this morning by asking you to think through your next step. What is a step that God might want you to take as a result of hearing this message and getting into the word this morning? Uh, in a moment, we're going to receive the offering. Uh, please take the time right now to finish completing any information on the connection card or next steps as I'm talking through them. And then when the offering comes around, you can put the card in the offering. That'd be great. Uh, here's some suggestions for next steps. My next step, for the first time, 
I accept Jesus as my Savior and follow him as Lord. Maybe you've never decided to follow Christ, but you're at the place where you're ready to do that. Let us know. We would love to help you with that decision. Second, attend the Lord's Supper tonight. If you've decided to follow Christ and you want to celebrate that, we'd love to have you here. Third, go public with your faith in Christ by being baptized next week. That's, that's another step you could take. And then finally, uh, Discovering My Mission 401 is a class where we talk about how to share your faith. If you've been to 301 and signed the covenant, you can attend 401 on 415. That's coming up. Let us know if you'd like to do that. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we are really glad you're here. And we have a gift for you. Right out those double doors to the left, there's a little taller table with a book on it called What on Earth Am I Here For? It's a very small book that I think you'll find very helpful and encouraging and give you some perspective about God's purpose for our lives. Please pick that up, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's pray. Would you pray with me as the band comes up to lead us? Father, we thank you for the truth we find in your word that really does set us free. God, if we try to do all these things ourselves, we we have no power. We have no strength. But God, you, you have all the power and the love so that we can take the steps to obey you and find life in doing that. Help us, God, to do what you've laid on our heart this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.